The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. All right. Well, I think we're going to get going here. Welcome, everybody. It's been a couple of weeks. I don't remember how long. It's been a little while since we got to talk. It feels like a long time, at least. Probably hadn't been that long. But we're going to be picking back up. We've been going through the, the New Testament for quite some time now. And the next question we're looking at is First Timothy. So we're going to be starting First Timothy. And today we're going to pretty much use uh, our time to do like overview, background stuff, especially talking about Timothy, the place where Timothy was, Paul's relation to Timothy and the church where Timothy was um, ministering. And uh, if we have time, hopefully we'll kind of look at just an overview of what the book is all about in general. So um, before we get going in that too deep, though, why don't we, uh, why don't we have a prayer? Father, please bless us as we think about the people who put your word together that you, you gave them the truth, you revealed it to them, and they put it down so that we could understand you. We thank you for that and praise you for that, and we pray that as we think about the, the lives that you gave them and the, the truth that you delivered through them, that it would help us to appreciate what you want from us now in the world, that we'd serve you and honor you the way you deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Timothy, uh, I thought we could start there and just talk about him as a, as a person, as a character. I don't know what, there's, there's actually a lot of me of New Testament people. Obviously you got Jesus, you got people like Peter and John, you got Paul. I don't know of a lot of other characters in the New Testament besides Timothy um, that we know quite a bit about, except it's weird because most of the stuff we know about Timothy uh, is from the letters that are written. So it's uh, like secondhand, it's like commentary about Timothy, or we're reading between the lines of things that Paul would say to Timothy about Timothy or whatever. It's not like in Acts where we learn a lot about Barnabas, for instance, because there's all these stories. Barnabas did this and Barnabas said that, or obviously Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus said this, Jesus went there, blah, blah. Um, Timothy, there's only like one paragraph really about him. And then there's a lot of stuff that we can infer because he, we know he was on some trips with Paul. Uh, and yet there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of stuff to, to know about him, to say about him. So, so when you think about Timothy, what, what are some things that stand out? I don't know. I thought we'd just kick this around for a few minutes and talk about him as a man, some things about his story, uh, whatever. What, uh, what do you think about Timothy? Well, one of the first things is just the close relationship that he has with, uh, with the author here, Paul. Um, and for, you know, for a long time, it see it seems like, um, from the from the second letter that Paul had a pretty good relationship with his mom and grandmother even before he did with him, um, and so this is somebody who uh, who Paul's been close with the family for a long time, and uh, and yet uh, even though Timothy had a father, um, he, he his father was not a believer. So in a sense, Paul becomes like his father in the faith, and you have like this almost parent child relationship. Um, between Paul and Timothy, a real close, uh, intimate relationship between the two of them that's always stood out to me and impressed me. Yeah. As much as or more than pretty much any other. I mean, there may have been others like that that Paul felt a lot about, but 
there's not really anybody we see that he, he treats quite like that. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that just to speak to what come as far as the close relationship and the father son relationship, it wasn't that long ago. We looked at Philippians chapter two, where Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians two and verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So Paul and Paul's comparing this to Jesus and he's comparing it to his relationship with these Christians. And he says, I don't know anybody else that would care about you as much as Timothy would. Mm -hmm. He goes on in verse 22 to speak to exactly what you were saying. Um, You know, Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So, yeah, I mean, not only did they have a, a really tight, intimate relationship, but Timothy modeled his life after Paul's life in a big way. Yeah. I'm always amazed in that part of it, of what Timothy was willing to do in service of the gospel. Really, from the very first time we get introduced to him in the Bible story in Acts chapter 16, it says that Paul showed up into town in, uh, in Derby and Lystra, and there was a disciple there named Timothy, and as you pointed out, He was the son of a Jewish woman. And then the text says, but his father was a Greek. And the way, when you pair that with the fact that his father's never mentioned positively, I don't think that, but he was a Greek meant, oh, you know how the Greeks are, because we know the gospel is for all, like Jew, Greek, whatever. Probably what that indicates is Timothy's father had said, no, I'm not going to become a Christian. I'm going to maintain my devotion to Greek culture, Greek religion, whatever which makes it even more impressive that Timothy is not only a disciple because think about how many young men would follow the religion of their mother rather than the religion of their father in the ancient world. I mean, even now like that, I don't know how, what the breakdown is statistically, but you can imagine in that culture, it's pretty embarrassing. Like you're taking a woman's religion instead of your father's religion. What's wrong with you kid? But he saw the truth when he saw it. And not only did he believe in the gospel, but verse two, it says he was spoken well of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So something about his life had stood out already from the time that he was a young man. And then in verse three of Acts 16, it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek and they went on their way to their cities and they did all this teaching. So not only is Timothy willing to step aside from his father's religion and culture to follow after his mother, who's a believer in Jesus, not only is he someone who's already lived in such a way, even as a young man, that brethren took notice of it. And they were like, man, this kid, he's, he's really something. He's willing to be circumcised, which was not necessary. It wasn't like God was like, you got to be circumcised. It was purely so that he could relate better culturally to people who would be like, wait, that Greek kid, Timothy, can we really trust him? Paul got him to go through this painful, unnecessary um, action to be able to serve better. And then he's willing to go with Paul, who knows where, for who knows how long, facing who knows what what trials. I mean, the very next story is about Paul getting thrown in prison. So Timothy's willingness, and Paul summarizes that passage in Philippians too, Timothy's willingness to serve faithfully, to be self-sacrificing is really impressive, I think. Yeah, and especially because, I mean, as you said, he's, he's kind of torn between two worlds here, growing up in a in – a, confusing situation between uh his his mother's jewish background his father's greek heritage um it's remarkable that he has uh, the kind of faith and i guess strength to uh to really kind of dive all in to his faith in christ 
And it speaks to what he must have heard about Jesus when Paul came and preached. Um, that whatever he must have heard uh, must have been convicting to him um, to really cause him to, to go through a lot. I mean, you see Timothy, in some ways, he's kind of an ideal candidate to do the kind of work that Paul does because Paul is spending so much time with both Jews and Greeks. Um, he's not really kind of only focusing on one. Um, and Timothy's kind of torn between those two worlds too. But the lengths at which he's willing to go to to serve these brethren and to become, uh, you know, uh, a sacrifice to the brothers and sisters, pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that he does it in such a consistent way, right? It wasn't like Paul showed up and he's like, oh, I've heard about Paul. Let me, let me like impress him. The reason why Paul picked him up is because he was doing service that nobody would have ever noticed. I can imagine that he thought nobody ever would notice at all. He was just being a godly young man. And he was doing it as a young man. Uh, and then he goes with Paul and he doesn't ever bail out on Paul. Matter of fact, there's a number of his letters. I'm, for, I'm gonna forget some of them, but I think it's both the Corinthian letters, right? Um, maybe it's second, second Corinthians mentions uh, Timothy being with Paul. Uh, he's in like the, uh, I don't know that means he was a co-author, but at least he was a co-signer of this letter from Paul to the, the Corinthians and second Corinthians. We saw in the Thessalonian letters, he was with Paul with both the letters that were written to the Thessalonians. He gets a shout out in Philippians. Um, I don't remember, was he uh, in, uh, yeah, yeah, Colossians chapter one and verse one. He's there in the co-signer. So there's this consistency with him. He's doing it when he's not getting noticed. He's doing it as a young man. He's doing it wherever he goes. And he's remaining faithful to the cause. You kind of can just track like as Paul was continuing his work. Timothy's right there by his side. And that's a really admirable thing. Some people can be sacrificial. I would say I can be sacrificial or brave or whatever in spurts, but the challenge is to do it always and to keep on doing it no matter what, what may come. And that's a pretty impressive thing about him as well. Yeah. Which kind of just speaks to uh, the fact that he, he is a child becoming like his father, right? I mean, he's willing to go with him. He's willing to serve with him. He's willing to, uh, lay his life down for the brethren. That note in Philippians has always stood out to me about him. There's no one who has the, the same care, uh, genuine care for your welfare, like Timothy. Yeah. Uh, he's definitely he's definitely learned to uh, embody the same characteristics that made Paul so useful in the gospel. Timothy has that same genuine care for his brothers and sisters to, that, it, that his teacher, um, Paul, the apostle, did. Yeah. The one other thing, and I don't know how much uh, we want to get into this now. It's, it's going to come up from time to time as we go through the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. Uh, but I think it's worth maybe talking about here at the outset of our exploration of these letters. Even though Timothy was uh, a son in the faith to Paul, an imitator of Paul in his care and concern for others, um, he was uh, a, a truly self-sacrificing servant. He truly cared for people. He was obviously brave. He was reliable and diligent, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, it seems like when you read First and Second Timothy, especially Second Timothy, but I think it comes out in First Timothy also, he would sometimes struggle with, I don't know what the right word is, if it's confidence or courage or um, uh, strength, something like it's funny because I think when you read 
Acts and all the other letters. I mean, we just got done with Thessalonians, but just to add this to the pile, it's amazing to me that a kid, however old he was, 16, 18, 20, 15, whatever the age was, he's traveling back and forth between Athens, Greece, and Thessalonica, and he's delivering messages to Paul and being sent back by Paul, and he's preaching to people about their work life and their sex life, and he's a kid telling people how to be Christians. I just admire him so much for his courage. And yet it's, I think it's really valuable to see that in the midst of all these amazing qualities, Paul gives some pretty strong exhortations to Timothy about uh, how he needs to keep on going, how he needs to be strong, how he needs to be brave. Uh, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Or what, what, what speaks to you in, in that, that element of Timothy's character that we learn in these letters? Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with you. I think uh, it one, it just shows kind of his humanity. First of all, I mean, he, he's, he's definitely human. Um, and it's not as if, uh, serving the Lord was always easy for him. I mean, there's a reason that Paul had to say to him things like, God did not give us a spirit of fear, um, but of power, love, and discipline. I mean, seems to me that uh, he was struggling with that, um, struggling to not to be afraid in the situation that he's in um, for a lot of different reasons, probably in part because he was young. Um, and we don't know how young, but relatively young. There's some, that Paul's going to make that clear in this letter as well uh, when he says, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness. Um, it's clear that he was looked down upon. It seems like he, he at least felt looked down upon because of his youthfulness. And so, uh, and so uh, I think, it, you know, in some ways it's comforting to know that somebody who was as faithful and useful as Timothy was also had like struggles that made him appear very much like us, like, you know, just an ordinary guy struggling to find the courage to do what he knows he needs to do. And, and that's sometimes where we find our, ourselves in, at least where I find myself. And so I think um, the, it's, the book is helpful in that way because Paul's going to help him. These, these letters, in these letters, Paul's going to help them to figure out how to, how to find that courage and how to find that confidence and um, a zeal that will uh, transcend fear um, and move him to serve the Lord. Amen. Yeah, that's right. So this is probably a pretty good pivot spot to talk about, at least in the context we know of 1 Timothy, where it's kind of a little less clear in 2 Timothy. But part of the reason why Timothy might have been a little intimidated, struggle with fear, insecurity, whatever, is because of the place where he was working. Um, when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then he goes on from there. Um, so I think it's, it's worth talking about the, the context in which Timothy was, was ministering and that Paul's writing this letter. The reason I say that there's a lot of stuff in first Timothy, especially it's not really for Timothy. There's all kinds of stuff about, I don't know how women are supposed to behave or how uh, married men are supposed to behave. We don't see any indication that Timothy was uh, there's stuff about, uh, greedy people, which there's no, I mean, there's a warning there for Timothy not to be like that, but it's not like Timothy stopped being that. It's just time. I think it's almost fair to say that uh, you could almost call first Timothy Ephesians two or uh, second Ephesians, because this letter is just as much for the church at Ephesus as it is for Timothy personally. Obviously a lot of the things in here were things that Timothy had a role and responsibility to kind of set in order or, or watch about for or to defend the truth on. But a lot of this stuff is about how the church operates. It's about how other relationships are supposed to be there. So um, 
with that in mind, when you think about Ephesus, either Ephesus when it got started, Ephesus at this juncture, what it seems like from the letter, or Ephesus in general, like what 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 jumps out at you when you think about the church at Ephesus? A pretty prominent church. I mean, of, of the New Testament churches, it's one that gets a lot of uh, pages between the book of Ephesians, 1 Timothy, there's a reference in Revelation 2, and as much attention in the book of Acts as just about any church other than maybe Jerusalem and a little bit of Antioch, uh, Ephesus is right up there as far as significance that it gets in terms of uh, attention in the, in the scripture. So when you think about Ephesus, what, what should we think about as we jump into this letter, think about Timothy at Ephesus and what that meant? Um, well, so one thing that comes to mind is just like the first time that Paul showed up there in Acts 19, um, you know, it's obvious that uh, Ephesus is kind of a big deal. It's a, it's a big city. Um, it's a port city, which is not quite as big a deal today as it, as it maybe it used to be because you can fly everywhere. But still, like, you know, a lot of the biggest cities across the world are port cities, um, even today. Even so much more pre-airplanes, you know, like uh, that, that's kind of where, where it all happens. And so um, it may be that the city in and of itself was intimidating. On top of that, you know, when Paul first came there, um, it was kind of a rough beginning for the saints in Ephesus. I mean, um, there arose such a great disturbance about the way in Ephesus um, that basically a riot got started over Christians um, and over the fear that the Ephesians had that this was in some way going to destroy their um, goddess Artemis, who was uh, who was kind of uh, seen as the goddess of the city and worshipped throughout the, that province. Um, so it, you know there was a lot of uh, misunderstandings of Christianity from the beginning, or at least if not a misunderstanding, maybe just um, fear of what Christianity might do to Ephesian culture, to Ephesian way of life, to Ephesian idolatry, um, or Ephesian worship and religion, as they would put it. Um, but, uh, and so all of that, you put all that together, I mean, it seems like an intimidating place to be thrown if you're a young guy just trying to figure out how to serve and how to minister and how to lead. Um, you know, being stuck in a church in a city like that might be a little intimidating, you know? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And then internally, I think there'd be a lot of challenges too. It's interesting to see the trajectory of the church at Ephesus because like Acts 19, the part that you were just uh, talking about, as much as there was opposition and challenges and pain from the outside, internally, it was amazing. I mean, right. Paul comes and preaches. And I mean, there's people who are already disciples who were willing to go back literally to square one to be baptized appropriately. Right. Um, they get driven out of the synagogue. No problem, man. We'll just go to this uh, school over here at Tyrannus and we'll, we'll just do our learning here. And, um, you know, there's uh, people are like, bringing their books of magic and burning them. They're making huge sacrifices to change their lives. The persecution and that riot, that didn't stop anything. Matter of fact, they, they are sending Paul out bravely saying, hey, Paul, you get out of here. We'll be fine. Go ahead. Um, the church is amazing. It's interesting in the next chapter, which was quite a bit of time transpired between Acts 19, and Acts 20, but in Acts 20, Paul comes back and it's, he doesn't even go to Ephesus. And I think we can gather from that text that the reason was because if Paul went to the city of Ephesus, he wouldn't be able to keep on moving and he had to keep on moving. I think it shows how much care he had for the church there and that they had for him is that he knew, man, if I stop off in Ephesus, 
I don't know if I'll ever get to leave. I don't know when I'll get to leave. So he's, but, but he, he cares about them so much that he can't stay there, but he can't go past them either. So he asks for the elders to come meet him and he gives them a speech at the end. They're hugging and kissing each other and all this because they're afraid it'll be their last time to see one another. It's just at this point, you're like, man, Ephesus may be the best church in the New Testament. You read the book of Ephesians. There's no, there's not many, at least like condemnations or criticisms. There's a lot of general doctrine and correction if somebody's violating it, but it's just, Hey, here's some teaching. You know, it's just this amazing place. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul does warn that, Hey, someday, some of you guys, even those of you who are leading this church as shepherds, some of you are going to rise up and you're going to be like wolves in the midst of the sheep. And all the rest of you need to be on your guard. And you don't need to be selfish and devouring. You need to remember to be loving, gracious, giving people and don't lead people astray into false doctrine, all that kind of stuff, which is kind of weird. Cause you're like, Paul, everything's been so great. What are you talking about, man? I mean, I know Ephesus is kind of a dark place, but we're the kingdom here. Like we're good. But then we flash forward. And so we're kind of confused by that sort of almost prophetic exhortation. But then you come to the end of the Bible story in revelation two and Paul's not in the picture, but as Jesus um, gives the revelation to John, Ephesus is a, on the surface, a great church still. He says, you guys, you don't tolerate false teachers. You're really active. You work a lot. You're doing all these great things. You persevere through trials, but you left the love you had at first. And if y'all don't straighten up, we're done. So First Timothy fits in the middle of that. And I think it's instructive for us to see that like this church, I think as we read first Timothy, it's pretty clear. Like this church was already starting to see some of those uh, challenges. And I can imagine for Timothy trying to help keep, keep the church, keep the brethren here on the right path. Meanwhile, they're like, Hey, we've been Christians for a while. Okay. Like the apostle Paul ever heard of him. He was here. He was the preacher here for a while. Thanks for your advice, little Timothy, but we had the real thing, you know, um, and I'm, I'm obviously dreaming up scenarios, but you can imagine how there would be pushback or there would be differences or whatever uh, that Timothy would have had to deal with and that the church there had to navigate in order to try to stay faithful. Yeah, especially if Paul, if uh, Timothy is struggles already with confidence and timidity to have to uh, follow uh, teachers like Paul, Apollos, even um, even other servants like Aquila and Priscilla, um, and to to have to follow in their footsteps and serve. I mean, it's, it's no no small task um, that is ahead of him. Uh, it's interesting too if you think about um, what we learn about Ephesus at the end of Scripture, where Jesus talks about how you know if they don't repent, he's going to take away their lampstand just reminded me too that, you know, sometimes even being faithful to the work and genuinely caring about, uh, about people's welfare and, and loving the Lord and doing his work doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to go well. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the church is going to be super receptive to the, to the work that you're doing either. Um, it, it's just interesting to me. You think with, with such a heritage, like, Paul, Paulus, Timothy working in this church, and you think that's going to be a faithful church for generations to come. Um, but by the end of scripture, like in, in the book of Revelation, which is still, still talking about first century, um, Jesus is already warning them about, hey, 
you know, you better be careful or you're going to end up losing your, your lampstand. Yeah. Kind of a sobering thought. Yeah. And I mean, even the fact that Paul's opening line that we referenced in verse three, this was the mission that Paul gave to Timothy. They were already having trouble with people teaching strange doctrines and getting caught up in false things and losing their way. Uh, so first Timothy, I think is really helpful for us, no matter where you are on the spectrum. If you're a brand new Christian, if you're in a tiny brand new church, if you're in a church that's been around for a long time, wherever you find yourself throughout life, we have to have an urgency about the truth of the gospel and about living in accordance with the gospel. And that's why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus was to, to make sure that would happen and to warn people about those false teachings and to warn people about uh, the false kind of living that they could fall into which may be a good place for us to transition into the theme theme statement or uh, uh, you know kind of summary of what the letter's all about in chapter three but i don't know is there anything else about ephesus that would be particularly good for us to talk about um before we do that there probably is but nothing that's in on my mind today um if, if you guys have other things to add please do drop those a couple of you already have appreciate that very much drop those in the comments we'll discuss them together yeah so chapter three, uh, this is a neat thing. This doesn't always happen. Sometimes we have to kind of read and discern and figure out, okay, what's, what's a good, if there is one, what's a good summary of this book, either a keyword or a key verse or something like that. And that's not always all that important because it's just a helpful way to remember the book. Uh, but some books explicitly say, this is what this book is about. This is why this was written. This is what it's all about. So first Timothy three and verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things so that, all right, so here we, here we go. Like Paul's saying, this is why I've written this letter. This is what it's all about. I've written these things so that if I delay, or in other words, if I can't come, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So Paul says, all right, this is it. This is why I'm writing this, uh, this letter. I think there's a few, uh, at least a couple of different angles that you can, you can read verses 14 through 16 um, through and kind of see what the letter is all about. Uh, but I'll, I'll kick it to you first. Well, what do you see in this summary statement, in this mission statement, in this thesis statement by Paul? Uh, what's, uh, what's, what's he saying that this letter's all about? Well, I think the first thing that jumps out is just uh, how important to Paul it is that people know how to conduct themselves in the church, in God's household. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about that in our context today. You know, there's so much focus on finding kind of a, a church that fits my preferences or my desires or my hopes or my, um, you know, needs. Um, but actually, like, if you think about it from the apostles' perspective, from Jesus' perspective, from, the, from the, uh, the people who founded this thing, if this is God's church, then the first thing that we ought to be thinking about is how should we conduct ourselves in the church? Like, what is, our, what is the conduct of a Christian supposed to be like? And how is the church supposed to function um, so that it can be what God intends it to be? I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, impactful, the things he says about the church of the living God, 
the pillar and the foundation of truth. Um, so those are pretty like strong metaphors to describe just how important the church is and what the role of the church is supposed to be. Um, so I guess that's the first thing that jumped out at me is Paul's really, really concerned about um, how people are conducting themselves in church. And, uh, and so he's writing for this reason to help, help Timothy figure out how to help the churches, um, specifically the one he's in, to, uh, to be able to act or conduct themselves in such a way that, uh, that ensures that it is the pillar and the foundation of truth. Yeah. 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 And I think in that respect, like this passage and this, it introduces an idea that we're going to see almost every time I think we open up first Timothy, uh, like all the new Testament, but this book, especially I think helps us clarify what does it mean to even be uh, a part of the church? What, what is the church? What, what is, what is functioning in the church? Cause I think some people might read this and it'd be easy to just go to like, all right, like this is how you're supposed to behave when Christians get together to worship on Sunday, you know? Well, yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a special thing we do as God's people as church, but this book's going to talk about uh, praying without being an angry person or being uh, a divisive person. Well, that's not, that's not just when you get together on Sunday. It's not about how you handle widows who are in trouble, who are in, in financial need. That's, that's every day they have those needs. Um, he's going to talk about how to relate to all people as family. And I think that's a, a helpful thing. I mean, household, it probably isn't a perfect parallel to family just because like, I think it's fair to say in a lot of first century households, there were more than just people in your family that were part of it. You know, businesses might be conducted from the household and, you know, all these kinds of things. But I think it's close enough where we could say like, what he's saying is, Hey, in the family of God, you guys need to learn how to conduct yourselves. And that's a all the time, 24 seven kind of thing. So in other words, first Timothy helps us to reshape our very identity as people and what we're a part of. And you kind of highlighted this too. So much of that is about how our behaviors impact our ability to hold up the truth. I like that. The, the pillar and support of the truth. Like it, it's like a, we're, we're trying to put something on display, but if we don't know how to live properly, we're not going to be able to display the truth of the gospel properly. Um, and so there's a really comprehensive view of every aspect of my life, marriage, work, leadership among God's people, um, prayer, uh, I mean, just everything relates to whether or not we're going to be able to, as God's family, to point people toward the Father. Yeah. And that idea of uh, God's household is going to be a big deal here in this text, you know, um, and I think it's helpful, uh, you know, to reflect on that and think about um, this is not like, this is not just a club that, uh, that we're joining that, that we get to kind of decide and decide how it's going to go or what direction it's going to head. This is, this is the household of God. This is the family of God. And so, uh, and so we need to take it seriously. It's, it's, it's something that should, that, that, uh, we should look to the uh, the head of the household to teach us how to act and how to conduct ourselves within it. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, this may be a little bit, uh, I don't know, I think it's worth pointing out here. Uh, we do this from time to time, but it's good to remember. Uh, someone just commented in the chat, and this is, this is a good point. There are times whenever Paul would write things that were his opinion, and he would say that. He would say, hey, I'm telling you this right now, this is just my opinion, okay? And I think I'm a spiritual man. I think you should trust me. 
but this is my opinion. But for the most part, for the, for the very, very, very large part of Paul's writings and the, all the apostles' writings, it's important that we understand that's what we're reading, what you just described. We're not reading like somebody in the household. He's just given his take on how the house should be conducted. Mm-hmm. He's someone who's speaking on behalf of the head of the household. He even says at the very beginning of the letter, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. In other words, he's asserting, hey, what I'm telling you is not just my opinions about how church should go. When I tell you about qualifications for elders, that's not just my opinion on a good kind of leader. When I'm telling you how to handle stuff with widows, that's not just my opinion on how to handle those who are in need. When I'm talking to you about greed, that's just not my, you know, socioeconomic policy that I think you guys should adopt. I'm conveying the commands of God, our savior. And in chapter three and verse 14, you even kind of see that that's why he's writing a letter is because we need to know that we can't figure these things out on our own. We can't kind of just come to these as on our own sense. It's the apostles writings that really serve as the authoritative documentation of what God wants in his household. I kind of wonder too, this is theory, but back to the point of just Timothy being in Ephesus, if there was some question about Timothy's legitimacy, which as you pointed out earlier from chapter four, they did question his legitimacy. They despised him because he was youthful. seems like maybe the reason this letter is addressed to Timothy, and yet it's so clearly mostly about the church at Ephesus, is so that when Timothy would teach something, people were like, what are you talking about, man? How dare you? Timothy would just be like, well, I got this letter from Paul. You can read it and you can tell me because he wrote these things to teach us how we ought to conduct ourselves in God's household. Paul, the messenger of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our savior, gave us this document to tell us how we ought to live. So it just elevates the importance of all the epistles, but especially in particular, this one that we're getting ready to start diving into. Yeah. um, David pointed out too, um, in Ephesians chapter two and verse 22, he says in him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit, which just emphasizes again, this idea, this is, this is, this is not just God's household. This is God's temple, the place where God is going to dwell. Um, and so when we talk about how to conduct yourself, we're, we're talking about how to conduct yourself in such a way that God can dwell in our midst and can dwell within us, um, and live among us. Um, so interestingly, right after that uh, statement in, or right before that statement in verse 22 of Ephesians 2, he says um, that you are fellow citizens, verse 19, uh, with God's people and are also members of his household. And then he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So just to emphasize the point that you're making there, when Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22, um, his point is to say that uh, the teachings that he is giving and the teachings that the, all the apostles are giving that are written down in the New Testament um, they're not uh, just opinions. In fact, as you, I think you said this, uh, Paul will make very clear when he's just giving his opinion or his judgment. Um, but by and large, these, these instructions are direct, directly from Christ Jesus. It is Christ Jesus who is the cornerstone. And it is his apostles and his prophets who are speaking forth for him. 
And that is the, actually the foundation upon which God's household is built. So if, if I want to know how to conduct myself in the household of God, how should the church be acting in, if we're going to be God's temple and God's people and God's family? How, how do we conduct ourselves? Well, I have to respect the authority that God has put in place for where to find that foundation and that teaching that is going to show me how to conduct myself. And according to, according to the New Testament, that foundation comes in the apostles and in the prophets. So I have to take very seriously what they say and consider it in order to know how to conduct myself in the household of God. Amen. And that's awesome. And again, seeing the connection between what Paul said to the Ephesians before and that to him really again. So that's a great text to highlight. And I mean, just, just real quick, I mean, this issue of making sure we get doctrinal truth correct is a huge point. I mean, Paul says right here, I'm writing these things so that you may know, not so that you may guess or so that you may kind of figure out or so that you may experiment. I'm telling you what the truth is. I mean, we already referenced this, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. If you go to chapter 4, he talks about uh, verse 6, chapter 4 and verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. I'm probably missing some, but chapter 6 and verse, uh, the very end of verse 2 and beginning of verse 3 in chapter 6 teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound or healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. And then one more, the very last sentence, verse 20 of chapter six, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So it's all these, it's, it's just kind of sprinkled throughout the letter, but this is a huge point of emphasis. I want you to read this, Paul says, so that you'll know how to live as God's people and be able to elevate him in the world, to display his truth in the world in this dark place in Ephesus filled with idolatry and sorcery and materialism and sexual immorality and, and injustice and all sorts of things. You need to stay on point. And the only way that's going to happen is if y'all hold very, very, very firmly to the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. Exactly right. I guess with that, it seems to me, uh, the interesting thing is in this text, Paul points toward the basis of, uh, we keep on talking about foundations. So the foundation of the foundation, I guess, of all this truth. One way to look at this is like, all right, let's figure out all the doctrinal truths. Okay, so what about uh, prayer? What does God want with that? What about men and women? How are they supposed to act? And what about leadership in the church? And, and let's get, uh, what about moral conduct? And how are we supposed to deal with those who are needy and, and all this kind of stuff? What about money? And, and like, you could do that in First Timothy. But instead of uh, highlighting those things in particular, or one of those things, Paul points to the underlying doctrine beneath it all in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Probably coming back to talk about godliness to be good here in just a second. But then he has this little poem that's a little summary of the story of Jesus, um, which makes sense. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says, The true doctrine is the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it's the same kind of thing. Uh, what, what speaks to you in this? Uh, it's kind of, to me, there's kind of some strange... Uh, ways of saying it 
um, as far as describing the story of Jesus. But there's some really beautiful parts. I mean, the whole thing is beautiful. Some of it I don't think I understand very well. But the parts that I, I do think I have some measure of appreciation for, I really, really like. But what do you like about the little poem where he, he speaks to the underlying truth of it all, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's not all the moral and ethical code. It's not all the church rules and all that kind of stuff. That's relevant. But this is the foundation of it all. What speaks to you in that little poem in, uh, in verse 16? Yeah, well, so uh, the first thing, of course, that jumps out is just that he appeared in the flesh. Um, he is arguing um, throughout this letter that uh, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is our hope, um, that essentially that he is Lord and he is God. Uh, he's the king, eternal, immortally, immortal, invisible um, you know, there's a huge emphasis uh, on the kingship of, of Jesus in this book. Um, and yet the king who was God became and appeared as flesh, um, appeared in the flesh. Um, I mean, I think that's just be- beautiful in and of itself. The, the, at the heart of the gospel is this picture that God would come down and dwell uh, as a human and dwell in flesh, become like those whom he has made so that he could experience um, what we have experienced. And I think that's, um, you know, that's kind of the, the beginning or the, or the, uh, the beginning of the beauty of the gospel story, Jesus coming down in the flesh, dwelling among us, be experiencing all, all the things that we experience, being tempted and tested in every way, just as we have been tested and tempted. That's the only way we can be in the household. He's the bridge between the divine and the human, between perfection and sin. He's, he's come down and been made that. And I think that helps with a lot of the instructions where we're like, man, that sounds kind of hard. Yeah. It's noticeable as we go through this letter, I think, like all the letters, and this is how we should always think about things, but Paul certainly gives us a great model for this. So often in these instructions that he gives, some of the hardest ones, he pairs it with a reminder of what Jesus did. Jesus was manifested in the flesh to show you the way, to show you how to live in the household of God. And if you have any doubt about it, he was vindicated by the spirit, or I think a way to read that, um, I think some translators say justified, the idea of being, he was proven to be what he claimed that he was. He claimed that he was the son of God. He claimed that he was the king and he's proven to be by the spirit. I don't know what your take on this is. I think there's at least two possibilities, well, probably three possibilities for this. One is he was vindicated by the spirit in that all the prophecies that the spirit made throughout the centuries, Jesus fulfilled them and, uh, and made them come true. And that way he was proven by the spirit, the spirit laid out this blueprint and Jesus fulfilled them. Another way, perhaps he was proven to be really the son of God and who he claimed to be and our savior and all that stuff was in the miracles that he performed all throughout his ministry, where he's doing all these amazing things where people would say, nobody ever did anything like this. He must be the, and Jesus would say, if I'm, if I'm doing this stuff that you've never seen before, what's that tell you? You know, you, you need to get on board here. But I think the biggest way that Jesus was vindicated in the spirit or justified by the spirit or proven to really be the son of God is in the resurrection. Paul used that language in Romans one and verse four, where he says, Jesus was confirmed to be the son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead through the spirit of holiness. 
And so I think that that's what relates here. And so, so much of the, the life we live in as God's household is a vulnerable life. It's a life that our neighbors look at and see as foolish or sometimes even bad. And we can wonder, is this right? Well, people thought the same thing about Jesus and he was vulnerable and people thought he was bad, but he was vindicated in his resurrection from the dead. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Ultimately uh, for, for Jesus, his vindication didn't come until that resurrection from the dead. And, and so, uh, you know, for, for a lot of his life, He's, it at least appeared like, will he ever be vindicated? Will he ever be made right? Well, ultimately, he was made right by the Spirit. What about this part of uh, being seen by angels? Uh, what you know, you this, uh, I did the order that I did, so it's your turn. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering about that. So, I'm going to throw it back to you. For, uh, I mean, I get my, I get my opinion. I don't, I don't know. I, it seems to me if manifest in the flesh is here's the life of Jesus, Vindicated by the Spirit is his death and resurrection. Seen by angels, it makes me think about his ascension. Acts 1, there, the, the angels are there when he ascends. If we read Daniel 7 as like the scene of Jesus ascending to the throne and taking over the throne of heaven, um, and you read stuff in Revelation of the angels praising him, I think that's what it is. Is like, you know, um, is a really pathetic and stupid illustration, but you know, like after LeBron won his championship, the King won the championship. Remember the, the Nike ad was a witness. We are all witness. And the idea is like, we beheld the King. He's taken the throne well, in a much, much bigger way. The mm-hmm. heavenly beings bore witness. They, they saw him take the throne. That's the way I read that. And I guess that's because to me, the next step was then Jesus was after he took the throne seen by angels, he was proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world. The only problem is that last line taken up in glory would be out of order. So I wouldn't fight for it, but yeah. that's kind of the way I read it. I don't know what you think. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so you have kind of Jesus descending and then you have his death and his uh, resurrection, which is in terms is, is a vindication. And then you have the exaltation of Jesus, um, which leads to him being preached and, and believed on in the world. Um, I do think that idea of being taken up in glory is, and, and if, uh, if the idea of being seen by angels is, is similarly related to that, I think that's really critically important. Um, just as critically important as the other parts of it too, is uh, that when, when Jesus is exalted to the throne, when Jesus re- it returns to the right hand of the throne of God, um, that is what shows Jesus to really be who he claimed to be. Um, it's not just the resurrection that vindicates him. Technically, there are other people who've died and come back to life, yep. but it's the fact that with the resurrection, he then ascends to the throne. That's what shows ultimately, um, ultimately his suffering did not end in suffering, but ended in glory. And that's also what gives us hope as disciples that actually in the end, God will turn our suffering into glory. God will give us some sort of uh, relief, some sort of blessing, some sort of uh, uh, some some sort of uh, glory in the eternal glory that we that is awaiting us if we'll persevere until the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I said, my 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 theory on what the scene by angels referencing or pointing toward may be wrong, but if it is, then him emphasizing on two different occasions in this little poem 
manifest in the flesh, justified by the spirit, seen by angels in his ascension. Well, then the next one would be proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In other words, in two different ways, he's emphasizing this point you're making, which is the thing that makes Jesus special is that he reigns as king of kings. Um, and I, you see that especially in the last time he references Jesus' story in chapter 6. In verse 14, he talks about uh, how uh, Jesus made his testimony to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 6, verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, not who is immortal, but he has it. He's taken immortality. It's his who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or ever can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the last time Paul talks about the gospel story, he emphasizes exactly what you're bringing out. And it's that ascension, that, that claiming of all authority in heaven and on earth that really serves as the basis. I think somebody just commented uh, that this is the, the logic of our faith. And that's exactly right. The logic is, Look at what happened in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. This is the basis for all the other stuff we're going to talk about, about how to live in the household of God, as it says here. It's all rooted in this story. We believe this story and everything else flows out of that. Amen. Amen. Which kind of gives us a, a little bit to anticipate here. Um, Paul kind of unpacking this, if it's true that he's, uh, appeared in the flesh, been vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, was taken up in glory, then what does that mean for us who are still here on the earth? What does that mean for us in terms of how we conduct ourselves and how we work? Everything that we're doing is to please the one who's on the throne, the one who's already been taken up in glory, because, as he's going to point out in these letters, actually his goal is that by imitating him and by living for him and working for him and conducting ourselves in a way that pleases him, ultimately, as we share in his sufferings one day, if, and we endure with him, one day we will reign with him. We'll share in that glory with him uh, as well. And so actually what happened for Jesus um, is, uh, Paul's going to say to Timothy, is actually what is true for all of us who will follow in his footsteps and walk with him. And so then the uh, instructions are given to us to teach us how to do that in a way that pleases him, how to, how to keep uh, the people of God seeking him, faithful to him, and uh, standing up as a pillar and, and uh, foundation of truth. Yeah, yeah. which I think, and, and we're getting ready to land the plane here, but that statement of verse 16, it's funny. He doesn't say great indeed is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Although that's clearly what he's outlining, whatever some of the particulars mean, he's talking about the gospel story and how it works and how it has worked in the world. But what he calls it in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Um, and I don't think he means mystery like, oh, this is hard to figure out. But this thing that nobody could ever, nobody could ever figure out, but God has unveiled the mystery. He's, 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 he's torn off the veil that, that we couldn't quite figure out how to live as we ought. God has shown us through Jesus. And the way he describes that story of Jesus is uh, godliness. And that, that word's going to come up a few times in the letters to Timothy and the concept of being a godly person, not being a worldly person, not being consumed with, um, we'll look at Lord willing next time in chapter one, you know, human mythologies and stuff. That's not what we're concerned about. Our life is guided by the glorious gospel of our 
our God and Savior. Um, people who are wrapped up in physical adornment or in their own power or people who uh, might be consumed in what you can and can't eat and stuff like that. That's not what we're about. We're about something higher. Godliness elevates our perspective. It elevates our lifestyle. And not so that we ourselves are exalted, but as we keep coming back to, that we can accomplish the mission God's given us of holding up his truth in the world, that we live godly lives based on the gospel of God, the true godly doctrine leads to godly lives, which leads to the proclamation of God in the world more and more. Yeah, I think that's right. And and actually, he's going to contrast godliness and godly teaching and and living this life of godliness, um, exercising yourself to godliness. He's going to contrast that with uh, what you could call godlessness um, or profaneness. Um, in many ways, Paul, what Paul is going to do here, even though, um, you know, even though I, I, I don't know that this is like his main point, but a lot of what he's going to do here is kind of contrast the difference between people who, who may appear, who may claim to be uh, working for God, but really are godless in what they are, in what they are doing. They're profane, they're accomplishing things that actually in the end do not please him. And he's going to contrast that with what does a worker, a minister, a servant um, who, who really loves God and is really trying to pursue godless, godliness um, and, and live out his faith in a, in a way that is holy and pleasing to God. What does that actually look like? In large part, that's what we're going to see here in this book. And I think it's a great um, point of clarification for us. That's what Jesus came to lead us toward. Yeah, yeah. You kind of pointed this out at the very beginning. A lot of times we think in a wrong way about church. Maybe not right at the very beginning when we were talking this text. We think in a lot wrong way about church. We think about what can I get out of it? What can it do for me? What can God do? Well, look, God does stuff for us, and, and churches should help those who are a part of them and stuff. But the goal is not my own self-actualization or fulfillment or pleasure or whatever. Mm-hmm. The goal of everything Jesus has done is that I would be godly in this present age, that I'd be different than everybody else, not, not to lift myself up or to feel better about myself, but so that God can be seen through me. And as we go through this, we're going to find a lot of teachings that are like, whoa, no, that doesn't sound right. I don't like that at all. That's just, that goes against everything I ever thought. Well, yeah, because we're trying to be godly here. We're trying to be something different than we ever thought and we ever were before. So I think that's going to be exciting. I think it's going to be challenging. It was challenging for people in Ephesus, even people who have been Christians for quite a while and had been a really great church. It was challenging enough that Paul had to write this whole letter to back up his pupil, Timothy, and say, hey, this isn't just Timothy popping off saying whatever he wants. This is the truth of the gospel, and you need to live in accordance with it so you can be God's people in the world. Yeah, and I think that's why this book is helpful and important for us to consider, because whether you're like a, you're not even a Christian, you're just considering like, what does it mean to be a Christian? And what does that life actually look like? And what does it entail? And why are people actually following that? Or whether you're like a seasoned Christian who's, who's grown in maturity. Um, this book has a little bit of every, a little bit for everybody. Um, and I think it, it's really going to challenge all of us um, in, in different ways to kind of see how, how, how we measure up or how we uh, are acting or conducting ourselves compared to what it is that God says how he wants us to be conducting ourselves if we're going to be pleasing to him amen that's probably a pretty good place to wrap it up so uh we can stop there today thanks everybody it was really good there were a lot of comments that were made we couldn't get to all of them but uh 
obviously we're always really happy when everybody's able to chat. We're able to engage with that stuff. Even if we don't directly reference it, we can touch on it. Um, and just everybody can see some other comments. So uh, um, keep on following us here on the Facebook page. So you can know whenever we're checking, um, uh, checking in with uh, these different studies. Lord willing, we'll be back on next Saturday and we'll start from the top of the letter in chapter one, verse one. And we'll do like we normally do, just going through section by section, trying to learn what the Lord is teaching us here so that we can understand how to conduct ourselves in, in God's house. So anything else we need to say before we wrap it up here today? No, I think that's great. Thanks so much for joining us. Please do continue to, uh, to, to join us every week. We should be going every week from here on out, uh, God willing. Um, and, uh, and, and all, as always, we appreciate your comments, your engagement in the discussion as well. These discussions are normally better the more you all engage in that. So we thank you for doing that. All right. Let us know if we can do anything for you. Reach out to us. If you have any questions, uh, if you have any disagreement, or if you have other things you just want to share, we'd love to read it, hear about it, uh, engage in whatever way possible. Reach out to us here on our Facebook page. You can follow us on our YouTube channel uh, and let us know how we can help you out. Otherwise, thanks for joining. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, guys. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.